You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the show. This is Dan Johnson. I'm your host. And uh, what are we going to do today? We're going to, we got a really cool podcast, but before we talk about the podcast, I know a lot of you guys are already into the thick of it for turkey hunting. My season starts this coming Friday, so I'm taking a half day vacation on Thursday so I can go down, set up some blinds and uh, I guess get into position for the first couple hunts for uh, Friday morning and then Friday, Saturday and Sunday, me and the wife are going to go out and try to uh, kill some thunder chickens as they say. So uh, we always have pretty good luck if the weather is, if the weather cooperates, but if it's rainy or windy uh, or any other bad type of weather, turkey hunting can kind of suck. Fortunately, I hunt, I turkey hunt on a farm in a river bottom that has a ton of turkeys and historically it's pretty easy to get one located and, and to get one, uh, called in. But today is Wednesday, it's hump day, and we are going to be talking with CJ Davis from Montana decoys and CJ is going to talk to us about their entire product line, what makes their uh, decoys different, what makes their decoys unique, what makes their decoys portable, so forth and so on. And uh, me personally, I've never really hunted with a decoy except for turkey. You know, I use a, a turkey decoy. I've never used one in the whitetail woods. I wish I had one when I was out west a couple years ago with antelope. But uh, other than that, I've really never used a decoy. And um I think it's something, especially as I start transitioning to a yearly Western trip, I feel like I'm going to want to have a decoy with me on standby just in case. So enough of me talking. We'll keep this short and sweet and uh, we'll get into the podcast. But before we do, I'm going to let Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras talk to you a little bit about the pros and cons of running trail cameras. You know, we talk about this a lot, Chad and I do, you know, sitting around as we're, we're trying to come up with new products um, or ways to make our trail cameras better. And the fact that since trail cameras have become uh, as big as they have over the last 10 to 20 years, they're hugely important. They allow us so many things that were not possible before trail cameras became available to us. You know, I talk about it a lot from my personal stances. Trail cameras have allowed me to evolve as a hunter so much faster than I think I would have without them because I'm able to see what's going on and learn so much about the deer that I'm hunting um, when I'm not in the woods. And, and seeing those things, 
have allowed me to, to kind of pick and choose the places and the deer that I want to hunt so much more than I'd be able to, if I was just sitting on a log, hoping for the best, like it was in the old days. But I will say, I think they do get people in trouble in the fact that, you know, a lot of times this day and age, if we're not seeing that big mature buck showing up on camera day after day, we're hesitant to sit in the woods and wait. And, and I think there are times when that's kind of come back to haunt me is the fact that, you know, no matter how much Intel we're able to get, no matter how much, uh, no matter how much digital scouting we're able to do with these trail cameras, um, and all the tools that are available to us these days, there's nothing that, that beats putting time in the woods and learning things that are out there. And I think sometimes we rely a little too much on that data when, you know, sometimes you have to shut that switch off and really go in there and figure things out, um, for yourself. If you guys want to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. Now, let's get right into this week's show. All right. On the show with me now is CJ Davis from Montana Decoys. How are you, you doing today, CJ? I'm doing great, Dan. How about you? I can't complain. You know, my Monday is over. And you're uh, you're in Iowa, so I'm looking at about 75 degrees and sunny right now. We're in South Carolina. What's your weather like? Let's see. I think today it's it's about between 70 and 75 as well. A little overcast, but it's absolutely gorgeous for this time of year up here. So I hope this nice. I hope it this week rounds out with the same temperatures and same type of sunny conditions because this is my long weekend for turkey hunting. Oh boy. How about, have you been out turkey hunting at all this year? Oh, man, yeah. Our season here in South Carolina opened this year for the first time ever on March 20th. We uh, the, the DNR bumped our season up on March 20th and extended it through May 5th. So we had a little bit of an early opener. Um, and I was fortunate to hunt some here. I've been to uh, Kansas for their archery season. I just got back from Colorado. And uh, I'm hopeful I'm going to sneak out tomorrow and hunt for a little bit. I gotcha. So uh, you're all over the place for for the spring turkey hunting. Yeah, I'm a uh, I'm a little bit of a turkey addict. I got my start in the outdoor industry working for the National Wild Turkey Federation. Okay. I started off as a uh, a glorified copywriter is what I was. I got you. Um, and they obviously were were very lenient about what they considered a quality writer back then. <laughs> so. But I am, uh, I'm very, very passionate about my turkey hunting, very passionate about the NWTF and just tickled to death that I have a job that I can legitimately say I'm doing field testing when I go turkey hunting. Yeah. I want one of those jobs someday. So, Hey, I tell you what, <laughs> Montana decoy ever ha- needs a field tester. Why don't you look me up? <laughs> I'll put you to the top of the list. <laughs> Sounds good. There's a there's a kickback to that though. I have to be able to hunt with said field tester on his best place. Oh, okay. Asterisks, right? <laughs> Got to put that asterisk. <laughs> well, let's see here. Before we get into what you do for Montana Decoy and the rest of the program, um, how was your 2015 hunting season? It was pretty good. Um, for Turkey, it was it was a little slow around around home. Um, but it was really good. The, the fall was much better. I finally got an elk with my recurve. I'm a little bit of a traditional archer, and I've been trying to do that for a few years. So I, I did a little drop camp DIY kind of deal in Colorado and, and got a 
got a bull with that using one of our new prototype decoys for elk. So I was pretty jazzed about that. That kind of killed a, a doe or two around home and that elk, and that was about it for me. But I was okay with that. Yeah, I uh, I I'm sure my listeners are sick of hearing it now, but my September elk hunt was spent in a tent most of the time because uh it was raining so hard for so long on on the uh, five days that i was out there but gorgeous country and uh what part of the what part of the state did you hunt in when you were out in colorado it was down uh kind of southwest colorado not really all that far from from new mexico okay and it was a, a drop camp that um full draw outfitters fred eichler's deal oh yeah that he puts on and um i booked it for that year and and just had a great time there were three of us in it and another guy got a shot at an elk and a shot at a mule deer too so oh perfect um unfortunately his shots didn't work out as well as mine did but we had a great hunt nonetheless what uh, what state were you in i was in idaho oh okay yep okay. east side of idaho and uh it was a diy backcountry kind of walk in two hours, set up camp, and then go from there. It was fun. I'll, you, I'll definitely do it again. Any, uh, did you see any wolf activity in that part? We did not. I didn't see any wolves, didn't see any bears, didn't see any tracks of any kind for those kind of animals either. But um, uh, I did some research beforehand, and I definitely saw I, – I definitely read about wolves being in that area, but I didn't see any. You know, I – I used to hunt, and I still would like to, the bighorns of Wyoming, but drawing the, the good tags there has gotten a little tough. That's just beautiful country to me. Yeah. And I, I think when I first started hunting there, it only took two or three points to draw a good tag. Now it's up to about five or six, and I feel like a lot of that is because those grizzlies and wolves and the Tetons are pushing a lot of guys down to the bighorns because there's not so many conflicts there. Yeah, for sure. And there's theoretically there's more for elk, but it sure has made drawing a tag kind of tough for me. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have, I haven't even thought about. I've bought points for Wyoming, but I haven't done anything outside. Like I haven't applied to actually hunt yet. So th- that's going to be coming. Wyoming, it's a pretty cool state. You know, you can kill a big elk. You can do a, a kind of a general tag and, and put up with some with some other hunters running around in the area, maybe more than you won't, maybe not, but you can kind of apply for a first choice that you don't draw. And if you draw your second, you still get to keep your points. Yeah. It's a pretty niche state to me. It, it took me a few years to figure that out and figure out, you know, what the drawing odds really are, because I'd like to have, you know, in an ideal world, I can hunt the big horns every two or three years and, and maybe do a, over-the-counter area and those other ones to, to all set it, and that's just not possible anymore. I can't draw that tag every two or three years, so it's kind of kind of messed up my master plan, but that's not surprising. <laughs> well, I tell you what, there's plenty of, plenty of hunting ahead of us, but today we want to talk about Montana decoys, and uh, why don't we start off, CJ, by telling us what you do for the company and maybe provide us with as much company history as you can. Well, I, uh, I serve as president and, um, that sounds a lot, lot cooler than it probably is because we are a very small company. So my day to day stuff, you know, is, is dealing with manufacturing. It's dealing with our marketing efforts, um, dealing with our, 
social media. I don't actually do that. We have an agency that does it, but I have to keep a finger on all of that stuff. And then, of course, making the sales calls and 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 if we mess up with a dealer or something like that, I'm usually the one that gets to call and apologize. So I, I'm getting really good at walking in with my hat in my hand. I guess. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the company was started in 96 by a guy in Montana named Jerry McPherson. And he, he kept the story he tells me, and he's told me the same one over the years. So I believe it. And he was hunting an area there in Montana that was kind of open and he could see the elk and he could find the elk obviously. And he could call to the elk, but he couldn't get them to close within bow range. And he just had the idea of, man, if I could get a lightweight elk decoy, I think it could make a difference. So he messed around and messed around and created an elk decoy. That was the first first product of the company, launched the company, um, ran it very successfully for a number of years. And then um, we got involved with it, some partners and I, and Jerry serves now as, um, he's kind of our catch-all for field research and, and prototype development. and you know, just he kind of is the living embodiment of the brand of Montana Decoy. So he's the key part of what we do. And I think he gets to do the stuff that I really would like to do, which is that field testing again. But I feel like somebody has to kind of make the sales calls, and that's where I end up going. But it's been around since 96, um, and it was predominantly a, or has been a two-dimensional decoy company. Up until two or three years ago, we bought some three-dimensional turkeys. We started with a full strut that collapsed down that we called Papa Strut. Last year, we launched a uh, three-dimensional hen called Miss Perfect. And we're always trying to do something a little different. The hallmarks of Montana are realistic photographs, portability. So to make a three-dimensional decoy that's still realistic but yet is portable is our goal um, from turkeys. And so our turkey, our Miss Perfect, has a poseable head, which you can you can tweak the neck and the head any angle you like, and it also has two leg pole sleeves, so you can put it in a feeder, a looker, or you can set it on the ground and call it a breeder pose, or if you've got a dust bowl somewhere like she's dusting, it's a very versatile decoy, but yet folds completely flat, uh, so you can carry you know four or five in a turkey vest, where in the past one or two is about all you could get. It's a little bit unique, and that's what we we strive to do. And as a small company. It's a little easier for us to, to create a niche than it is to try to compete with some of the bigger players out there. Yeah, for sure. So was was the company sold at some point and then purchased by another by another company and that's where you guys came in? Or has it always been um, – uh, was it always based out of Montana? It's, it was based out of Montana until myself and, and two partners actually bought it. Okay. And so Jerry stays in, in Montana, and then uh, we warehouse in Pennsylvania is where we ship from, and uh, I'm based in South Carolina. I work from home. Okay. I got you. So let's talk and a little the, the, Go ahead. I was just going to say the decoys themselves, like most everything it seems these days, are made overseas. And I tried to, uh, when we first started this, I thought I was going to be be a great American and figure out a way that I could have it built here and still sell it at the same price. And unfortunately I just can't do that. Yep. No, that's, the, uh, the cost that's the way of the manufacturing world. here. Yeah. The cost of manufacturing here is just so much higher that for a, for a Miss Perfect, it costs $49. Now you'd have to pay $99 for it. I don't think I'd be in business very long. Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the actual, the manufacturing process. Um, and 
you know, you guys do your 3D printing. What is this 3D printing on? And I guess, how does that explain, elaborate on that a little bit? So the first, I'll start from the beginning. The first okay. decoys were, were two-dimensional fabric, like a polyester, and it was uh, it was it was heat transfer printed onto that polyester, and it was the same image on both sides, and it has a wire, a spring steel wire inside of it, so you can twist, fold it down. The uh, the turkeys, the three-dimensional, the Miss Perfect, and now we have a Jake Perfect that's uh, a little bit bigger than her, but built off the same technology and the same posable head, the same leg poles. Um, it's a, I call it a reverse slinky. So it's basically a, a large spring inside of there with two layers of fabric over it. And the top layer and the bottom layer are both printed with the same image, which is of a wild turkey. But one is a different material that's a little thicker on the inside. And the top side is lighter and it's cut based on the feather placement. And it's cut so that it resembles feathers. So when you look at our decoy, not only do you get a little movement with the feathers in a breeze, just like a real turkey, you know how those feathers kind of flip up and stuff, but it also gives you a soft edge. And when you look at a real turkey, there's kind of a soft edge to it instead of like some of the, the more hard body decoys where it's a firm edge and it just it doesn't look soft and it doesn't look um, fluffy almost like those feathers get it. And that also lets that decoy catch a breeze and, and turn on the stake in a, in a realistic manner, I think. So it's two layers of material that's wrapped around and stitched to a wire frame, and then there's a wire that runs up through the head and neck that allows you to pose it, and then the, the tail is printed around a uh, type of plastic that holds its position and, and gives it a look of feathers stacked on top of feathers, just like a tail fan would be. Okay. So with with all these with all these decoys that you know you guys have, you, I mean you got elk, you got deer, you got I mean you got a cow, you got a coyote, you got what are I mean are they postured in a way? And I'm and I'm just looking. I'm online right now and I'm I'm flipping through all the decoys you have. Are they? Is there a reason that they're postured like that? I know there you know there's a couple of the antelope looking right at you. Um, or an elk looking right at you, or an elk just the rump of the elk. It, or, is there a purpose behind that? I think there's a purpose behind every one of them, and we've I think we've gotten better in recent years about fleshing out those purposes or those poses, or I call it attitude a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you um, if you look at the freshman buck, that's one of the best examples of. We, uh, we took a deer and put him in an aggressive pose, but we put a small rack on him and we tucked his belly in so he looks like a two-year-old or two-and-a-half-year-old buck that's in a very aggressive pose. His, his nose is down, his forehead's forward, ears are laid back. That, to me, if you put it in human terms, it's the skinny, small kid on the playground Bowing up to the twelve-year-old, to the twelfth grader, it just you shouldn't be doing that. It's designed to cause a reaction in a buck that sees it. So it's it's the phrase I use is purpose built. And you go back to the elk decoys, you know, and, and it's kind of like turkey hunters. You ask a guy, you ask ten guys what the best turkey call is, you'll get ten different answers. So we try to have something that fits with anybody, no matter where they're hunting or what their style of hunting is. So the the Eichler elk, which we work with Fred Eichler on, it's looking at you because he likes the thought of when a bull approaches a cow, that cow generally looks at the elk. But 
But then we've got the uh, Cal Elk One and what will be new coming out this fall, the RMEF Elk, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation Elk, that's broadside. And a lot of people like that horizontal line. And they feel like that's what another animal keys in on. And those two are kind of looking at you. And then we've got the rump, which is designed for a guy that really doesn't want to carry any more than he has to because it pulls up so small. But the rump, and then this September, this September is kind of a quartering away pose. Those are feeding or disinterested poses. So that bull would feel like that cow is either feeding if it's that time of year when they're not running, then, you know, it's a feeding area and it draws them in for that reason, or they don't think that cow's paying them any attention and they come in. And that's probably us applying a lot of human emotion to an animal that doesn't do that. But if you have confidence in a product, if it's your bow or your broadhead or your decoy, I think it tends to work better for you. So we want to give guys options that are based on as best we can do it, science. And that freshman buck that I gave you an example of, another gentleman that we work with uh, is Dr. Grant Woods, GrowingDeer.tv. Yep. He's a very reputable biologist by training, and, and he has a really good following and an ability to take information and and regurgitate it in a way that the guys like me can understand it. And he worked with us a lot on that freshman buck to try to get the pose where we wanted it and to do what it what it's supposed to do and what we think it will do. Um, so we, we do think a lot about it. Those antelope, you know, they're the time of year that they're best for decoying an antelope is they're all aggressive at that time. They're defending their, their harems, their does. And, you know, another buck posturing the one would be looking at him. So it continues that, that purpose-built reasoning and, and trying to cause a specific reaction in the animal, which is to get it to come within bow rank. Right. Okay. So my next question is, all right, so let's say you're, and I'm just thinking of a hypothetical situation where I have my decoy out, all right, and I'm behind it either, you know, in a spot and stock position or I'm up in a tree somewhere. What kind of reaction do these animals have, do, do the real animals have when they see the decoy, they're coming into it, but then maybe flank its position and see it slowly disappear as they be, you know, as they come into the, the thin, the very thin line part of the decoy. What kind of reactions can a hunter, um, I guess, expect to see? I would say when it gets to that point, you'll either get a, a, um, a, a confused, like, where did that, where did that deer, where did that elk go? Or you'll get a, a hop back and stop and look at it again of, Something, something's weird there. I don't understand that. So what I do, the trade-off there is pretty obvious. If you're, if you want something that's easy to carry and lightweight, you're, you're compromising somewhere. Right. So if you're willing to carry a full body mount of a whitetail out, then you're not really compromising except on the trouble you're going through to tote it to and from. But when you're carrying a two-dimensional one, you have to think ahead a little bit more and enjoy that weight savings. So I always plan it where try to plan it. I'll say that because if I knew where every deer was going to walk every time, I'd just sit there and shoot it. But um, I try to plan it where if it's an animal I want to take, I will have a chance at a shot before it gets to that angle. Now with whitetails, a lot of times I'll use multiple decoys because I can carry three or four whitetail decoys and still have way less space and weight than if I'm hauling around one full body one. And I'll change the angles of them a little bit so that, you know, when one disappears, the other one is there. Play tricks with them like that and, and try to predict where, you know, those deer 
or if they're moving through a woodlot, you know, try to understand what their travel patterns are and place decoy accordingly. But if you're hunting a great big ag field, uh, again, you're you're trying to do your best guess there and, and set it up using that old rule of thumb of he's going to come to a buck head on, he's probably going to come to a doe from back. So you think through those things with that scenario. But the two reactions you'll get are puzzlement, and we've got footage of, of deer actually trying to mount a two-dimensional doe, and you, you would think that just wouldn't work. But animals do some strange things. Right. Okay. So from a, from a reaction standpoint, they're not getting spooked and running away. I wouldn't say they never do that because right. that would that would be uh, incorrect. They're gonna, you know, they may get a whiff of smell. They may not like it that it disappears. They they may have just gotten beat by some other buck and they're just spooky about the whole situation. So you know, decoy and whitetails, honestly, is probably the toughest the toughest thing going in my opinion. No matter what decoy you're using, because they are so whippy and they are so. Um, in tune to their environment. And when they commit to a buck decoy, it's like they throw all caution to the wind. But then if you've got some does around, they're the toughest of the tough. Um, and especially, you know, with like elk, most guys are not in tree stands. They're on the ground moving around. So you can control how you present that decoy to the approaching animal. Where in a tree stand, you're a little bit more at the mercy of a deer. Unless, you know, you're in a situation where you're spotting stalking across a cornfield or, or doing something like that. But you have to, you have to accept a little bit of risk in the whitetail world with any decoy, I believe. Right. Okay. So now that we, uh, we've talked a little bit about the animal's reaction to it, um, let's talk a little bit about how, you know, you mentioned portability. You know, uh, a cow elk is not a small animal. Is, is the size of, let's say, a cow elk or an antelope buck or a turkey or a deer or any animal that you have decoys of, to, to scale of the actual animal and how how compact do they close down to? So a lot of the two dimensional ones will, will compact down into less than an inch thick and and you know the size of a dinner plate, uh, like a Miss Perfect, which is a th- the three D hand. It it's smaller. It's more like it's a dessert plate, but it's a little bit thicker. It's maybe three quarters to an inch thick. So they they all fold down and you know weigh a pound or less for most of them. The leg poles weigh more than the decoys in most situations for the big game stuff. And I think we've done in recent years, again, trying to get more options out there for guys. Um, the RMEF elk I mentioned, it will be a bigger body decoy, and that's done by design because elk are bigger animals, but it also allows you to hide and sneak behind it a little bit better. Um, now, when you get into turkey decoys, I tend to believe that smaller is better. So we actually made this perfect a little smaller this year because if you're calling to a gobbler that's with hens and that dominant hen of the bunch is not intimidated by your hen because hens have a hierarchy of pecking order just like gobblers do, then it's more likely to come over. You don't want to do anything that's going to spook it. And you get into the Jake or the uh, a gobbler decoy, I think a smaller body there works for the same reason. I go to a whitetail, again, the freshman buck, you know, making that body smaller because I think animals, we're hung up on antlers, but I think animals, as a general rule, are hung up on body size. That that strength and that mass of the body is usually what wins a fight sometimes um, outside of a lucky antler score, perhaps. But I think the body size is, is generally across the board smaller from a non-threatening standpoint. It also helps accommodate the portability aspect of the decoys as well. 
Now, the RMEF Elk is a little bit bigger um, than most, but that was done by design for viewability and size to give somebody get an option and also to support the conservation organization as well. Okay. So, on, you know, different animals obviously require different, um, different tactics like, you know, spotting and stalking, for example. So, is this once you pull it out of your pack, right? Because it's small. Once you pull it out of your pack yep. and you put it, you pop it up, and is it designed to then be, let's say, maybe I'm walking through the the grasslands with the decoy in my one hand and my bow in the other, and then I can slam it in the dirt when I see something, when I need to stop or pick it up and keep going, or uh, explain that a little bit. Well, you always. The one thing we always preach is safety first. So you don't want to ever use it in a situation that you even remotely feel like there's a danger to it. But when you're, you know, in an archery only area and you know you're the only hunter around and you're confident absolutely of your safety, yeah, it's a mobile decoy. Um, in the past, you would have had the leg poles in independently. So when you stop, you have to stick one in and then stick the other one in. We tried to improve upon that last year with an item we call the quick stand. And that actually comes with our Eichler antelope, but it will work with any of our other big game decoys. And what it does is it holds the leg poles together, uh, keeps everything in, in one piece. So literally with one hand and one foot, you can set it up. You carry it with one hand and you got your bow in your other hand. You get to where you want to take the shot from. You just push down in the center of that quick stand and it adjusts lengthwise to fit any decoy. You just step it down into the dirt, and you're ready to shoot. And then if you need to move, the animal drifted off, and you're you're making a circle or you're doing whatever. It's got a toe loop in it. You just stick your boot in there and pop it up by the ground and keep going. You're not fighting two independent leg poles anymore. And then that thing also folds up, slides together, um, so it's real convenient real easy to carry and use. But, yeah, we, we have a lot of guys in the West that use our whitetail decoys just for that spot and stalk. And, and, obviously, antelope is huge for that. And uh, as, as is elk and mule deer, too. So I think that quick stand in the right situation is worth its weight in gold because it just makes it so much more fluid to set, stop, set the decoy, take a shot, or pull up the decoy and keep moving um, while keeping the head of the decoy erect. And, you know, you need to leg pull in a lot of them to do that. It just makes it a little bit easier to, to function with a bow in your hand. Right. Okay. So... Now I want to talk a little bit about maybe pros and cons, and I, I figure nobody better to talk to about that than the guy who owns a Montana decoy. So is there any, is there some, I know it, it, a lot of it depends on what animal you're actually hunting, but are there scenarios where um, a decoy will work and then maybe another scenario where even you guys say, all right, we don't want a decoy here. You know, I think the the compromise for a decoy, especially in the whitetail woods, if you're hunting a pinch point and you know deer are moving within your effective range through there, then putting a decoy out, in my opinion, you're risking contaminating that area, either by the scent you put on the ground yourself, the scent you leave on the decoy. Um, you know, it could be a doe coming through, leading the buck, and she doesn't like your buck decoy and shies away from it, dragging the buck with her. So if, if you're pretty set, and know where those deer are going to move in situations with tight pinch points like that, I tend to not use decoys uh, as much in those. But if you're in open, big hardwoods where, you know, there's 
and it's hard to predict exactly where they're going to walk, then whatever risk you're taking is worth it to me because you're going to pull them in closer. Turkey decoys, you know, there's there's times where I don't want to use a gobbler or a bait decoy. I just feel like it's, a, it's there's more risk involved in it, not because they don't believe the decoy is a turkey, but because they don't want to fight or or be attacked by another turkey. And and sometimes it's it's body language you see after the fact that you wish you'd just only used a single hen or or maybe they're really aggressive and you put out a gobbler decoy and it pulls him away from him. You just have to kind of play the, the stage of the season as well as the, the attitude of the animals and, and factoring in hunting pressure too. Um, the animals that are that are just punished by hunting pressure, I feel like they're just whippy and, and they're more sensitive to tiny mistakes and, and your best bet is, is catching them completely unaware. So any movement, anything like that or or, or or could be, you know, a hunt-ending decision there. But most of the time, if you're careful with your scent and you you pick the right decoy for the right area and the right time of the rut or breeding season, you know, you, you stand to gain more than you lose. But there are scenarios where, and I'm a guy that sells decoys for a living, obviously, but there are scenarios where you're, you're adding unnecessary risk by using one. Yeah. One question I forgot to ask you was in regards to maintenance of – of your products is there any specific um hey you got to keep it out of the sun for long periods of time because the image will fade or or anything like that that um a potential buyer needs to take into consideration don't pour your dopey directly on the decoy and then fold it up and put it in a ziploc bag <laughs> awful surprise when you open it don't fold it up with a lizard in it because the dead lizard is going to make it stink. Um, <laughs> I've learned all these things the hard way, but you know, our decoys are pretty durable and you know, if there's ever a manufacturing defect with it, we promptly immediately take care of it with the customer. We want our customers to be happy and have a good experience like any good business should. Um, if they get wet, it doesn't hurt them. I just wouldn't fold them up. I'd leave them, uh, you know, upright and let them dry out real good. Um, and I'll, you know, before deer season, a month or so before, I'll take mine out and bury them under leaves and set them up outside away from the grill or, or you know, where I'm running a weed eater or anything like that so it doesn't get any foreign odors on it. Um, but as far as the sun fading it, you would literally have to leave it set up for months at the time in direct sunlight. And for a hunting decoy, I don't think anybody's really going to be doing that. So, okay. That's so, really all you need to work out for. Or don't accidentally shoot your own decoy. We got a guy do that too. So. <laughs> he shot he a good shot on it. It was right behind the shoulder. I mean, it would have been a dead elk. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was his own decoy. True story. Set it up, went for a hunt, looped around, kind of forgot exactly where he was, eased up over the hill. There was an elk. He shot it. It was his decoy. Oh boy. I guess. I guess the, that means that means your decoys are really good. Yeah, yeah, but I still don't believe I would have told that story if I were that. <laughs> so, uh, as far as whitetails, as far as whitetails are concerned, I think everybody kind of knows what you know we do for uh, you know for setting up a decoy there. But what is your favorite type of decoy scenario? Maybe with an out west animal, or even I guess even whitetails. The thing I really like to do, and, and with a traditional bow, especially me shooting a traditional bow, I need them really close and really good position. So I use that decoy to try really to put them right where I can make a good shot on them um, before they totally get to the decoy. 
especially if I'm out west, it's just it's just impossible to conceal your scent completely and conceal any human scent on top of a decoy. So what I like to do is call from where I set the decoy up. And I'm a big caller if it's turkeys, elk, deer, whatever. I love to call. It just adds something to the experience for me. So I'll set the decoy up, try to think through my travel lanes of the animals, where they might approach from. Especially if I've got one spotted already that I'm targeting, then I'll call from that decoy, move forward and off to a side, and try to factor in the wind because generally they're going to come in a little bit downwind if it's a buck or a doe decoy I'm using. You know, which side of the decoy are they likely to approach and make it easy for them to follow a path that's going to give me a shot. So calling from the decoy from elk is just a, a great because they're looking for the sound and they find the decoy. It reinforces it. A lot of times you set a decoy up and you call from a different location. They're actually approaching you instead of the decoy, and you 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 lose a little bit of, I shouldn't say control of the situation, but you lose a little bit of the predictability of it to me. And, it, and anytime they can focus somewhere other than me trying to draw my recurve, it's a good thing. So calling from where I set the decoy up with elk is just great. I like to get out when it's that, you know, two-week window with whitetails, and, and I'll actually carry two uh, freshman bucks with me and set up like a, a rattling um, fighting scenario and then do the same thing, dive off to the side, playing the wind, that kind of deal. And hopefully when the buck approaches, if I've got some bedding areas keyed in on or some travel corridors, and it's just – just adds a little bit more excitement to it from sitting in a tree stand, which is arguably the best way to kill a deer, but gets you on the ground, gets you doing some different stuff. Again, I'm doing it from the decoys and then and then pitching off to the side, so to speak, and getting set up in an ambush location. Okay. Now, I've started to see a lot of this uh, turkey footage where these guys are behind a full strut de- decoy and they get within i mean i've had i've seen footage of guys reaching to grab them with their bare hands but when they miss then they pick their gun up and they shoot them have you have you yeah. ever had to do have you ever done any field testing like that yeah we have a product we released this year that was built specifically for that it's called the fanatic and it actually has a mesh view through screen like what you see in our antelope and our big red moo cow um that lets you see through it the way the leg pole is uh, attached to the body. It gives you a handle on it. And that's another great scenario where you're controlling the decoy completely. So it doesn't really matter that it's two-dimensional because you're only letting the gobbler see the side he wants to. And it, it really is. Turkeys are so unique to me because I can go out in the middle of a field and pop up a big old pop-up line that stands out like a sore thumb and a turkey will walk right by. A white tail won't come near it for five days. But I can sit up against a pine tree and twitch my nose and a turkey will catch me from 50 yards. It's just the way they perceive things and their, I guess their threat assessment is just completely different than ours. So, um, but that fanning, reaping, whatever you want to call it, it really is an amazing technique. And it's one that needs to be done, you know, in an area that you're completely safe and, and you're, and you're securing that knowledge. But in, we're working on some different tweaks with that to make it, you know, easier to use for next year and a little bit different design to give a guy a little bit more cover even too. So, and you know, the guys have been doing that same thing with literally just a fan off of a bird they killed. So you kind of know it works, why it works and why they don't see the 180 pound guy behind the fan. I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer that. But man, it's a rush. And I'll, I'll take that fanatic with me 
and sit on it. So I'm sitting up against the tree or, or wherever I'm hunting from. If I've got a shotgun or a bow in my hand and, you know, if you're working a bird and he comes to a point and you try everything else you can. And I'm a big believer in, you know, I just don't like sitting there late and I like things to happen. So I'll pull that fan out, that thematic out. And I've got a, I probably got a 60, 40, 60 to the better chance of him coming to me once I fan that at him, especially if he's got hands with him or other gobblers there. And at that point, for me, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk that if I booger him that other 40, that, you know, it was because he didn't want to fight a gobbler. It's not like I shot at him and missed him and spooked him. It's a little bit different, at least in my mind. And it's a, it's a great tactic. But, again, it's one that whether you're doing it set up or crawling across a wheat field, you need to make sure you're absolutely safe. So the big red cow, I have to ask, what what's that used for? What scenarios would you use a giant cow decoy for? So in certain parts of Texas, there are these wild cattle that guys go down there and pay big money to hunt. And I'm just making that up. <laughs> the, um, the big red moo cow was built for antelope hunters. It started out as a moo cow that was black. And we, <laughs> you know how it is, you can't win. We built a black one, everybody wanted a red one and a brown one. We built a red one, everybody wants a black one again now. So I, I can't win for that. But it, it's designed as what we call a stalking shield. So if you're hunting somewhere there's cattle or cattle are near where you're hunting, you would be surprised at what you can get away with behind that thing. We have guys using it, obviously, for antelope and elk and mule deer. But there's a lot of people that are using it for geese now and waterfowl in general. They'll set it up like a blind. We've had guys use it around feedlots to shoot doves. Um, we have guys use it for turkeys in pasture areas that they hunt a lot. And they, you know, there's big fields and those turkeys get in the middle and just stay out there and you you can't get within range, and whatever you try to do, you end up spoofing them. So short of digging a pit ball, seems like that's the, the next best option. So it's really a, a stalking shield more than a decoy. Now, having said that, that's not the weirdest thing we've ever built because we build custom decoys too. So guys hunting Ibex or guys going to Africa that want to Cape Buffalo. Uh, we had a guy hunting um, Oryx. I think in um, wherever that white sands or wherever it is, somewhere around in New Mexico or Arizona or somewhere like that, there's a, a bunch of wild donkeys. We built donkey decoys. We built, um, man, just about anything you can think of. We built a decoy for a guy to use it to stalk sheep and, and mountain goats, all that kind of stuff too. Had, did have they all had success with it? I think it's it just depends. You know, that market is not that big. It's not like there's a lot of competition out there. So if they're willing to, to be careful with it and use it, a lot of them do have success. Um, a lot of them, you know, we, we hear back from them that, hey, I was using the decoy, but the day I got my shot, um, he actually came from behind us and we weren't ready. We had to dive to the ground. I just got lucky and shot him or, or stuff like that. But those confidence decoys, you know, they've been used in waterfowl for years. You know, you have the guy that puts the crane decoy in his goose spread and stuff like that. It just just adds another touch of realism and helps cover up some movement when you're going across the valley floor to get to the next mountain range and you feel like that goat or that ibex is up there staring down at you if you're behind a big red book house looking along, you know, you get away with it a little bit more. All right. There's no magic bullet. You still have to be at the right place at the right time and make the shot when it's presented to you. But it's just another tool in your toolbox that in the right scenario can make or break a hunt. So this quick stand that I see as an accessory here, is that 
I mean, is that uh, work on all of your decoys? It will work on all of the two-dimensional big game ones. Uh, you could you could stick a couple of turkey decoys in it, but it would probably be a little more trouble than it would be worth. You could stick two fanatics in it side by side and really do some reaping that way. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, 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 it works with all of our big game ones. Designed primarily for, like, antelope and elk and whitetail spot and stalk. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, let's see here. What else do we want to talk about today? So I guess the next thing is, is as you guys move forward as a company, what are some new and exciting things that maybe you guys have on the table that you might be uh, introducing, you know, later this summer or in 2017? So I kind of mentioned a couple of them, the RMEF elk, which is a new elk for us. And it's a partnership with uh, RMEF. And obviously, I, I have a having worked for a conservation group. I, I really do feel uh, passionate about those. There's no perfect organization ever in the world. You can find fault if you look for it, but those organizations have helped in ways that our state agencies couldn't by providing funding and doing things like that. So it's a way for me as a uh, as a guy running a business to, in a way, give back to those companies bigger than I could as an individual. But it, it's also, it gains us marketing support with those companies and their passionate members. So the RMEF elk is new. Um, for this year, we redo the Miss Perfect, so it's a little bit better size. I think the construction is better this year. Um, and when I say construction is better, I mean it just looks a little better. Um, the size helped that. We redid the way the tail fan um, was covered in fabric, so it looks better. And, and the Jake and the... Um, Miss Perfect, as well as we still make some two-dimensional turkey decoys that honestly look as good as anything we've ever made. All of those are, are officially licensed products with the NWTF. But we're also doing a uh, Miss Muley, which would be a, a new mule deer decoy for us this fall. We had one that was in a feeding pose, but the, the printing and the pose construction just just wasn't quite what we wanted out of it. So we, 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 we kind of got rid of that one for a couple of years and, and figured out how to build one that we we thought worked a little better and looked a little better. So that's new. Um, we've also got, uh, we started working with Ralph and Vicky Ciancerula, and I'm probably not pronouncing that name correctly because I just Southern, I can't do it. But <laughs> they do a lot of moose hunting and they wanted something easy to use and, and replace the, the paddles and the, the moose shed that people were carrying around. You know, we've got a, a, a cow moose decoy, but it's a large decoy and it's a cow. So we created what's called the uh, moose rack, Archer's Choice moose rack, um, that'll be coming out. And it's literally a handheld moose head and rack, but it will fold down into three circles that stack on top of each other that's literally the size of a dessert plate. So you don't have to carry a boat paddle. You don't have to carry a shed antler. You can put that thing in your pack, unfold it, and run a couple of rods in it. And it's got a handle built into the bottom of it so that you can just wave it, flash it at that bull. You're doing your calling. You're raking a tree with a stick. you got all that realism going on. That decoy just kind of completes the circle for what that bull expects to see. And they had some great luck with it this past year and killed a bull with it, and it was a prototype. You can even hang it you know, and leave it off to the side, like I was talking about calling from and, and pitching off to the side to get a better angle on approaching animals. So, you know, a guy hunting by himself, if he if he stays where the decoy is, 
he runs the risk of his movement alerting the animal. And he also runs the risk of the animal coming straight in and not really giving him a shot. So that pitching off to the side is, you've heard me say that enough, but that's really something I really enjoy doing, I guess, because I've had more luck with it. But, so the moose rack, RMF elk, and the, the Miss Muley are what you'll see coming out this fall. We're working on a couple of other things. We got some new turkey stuff that I hope to have, um, hope to have released next spring. Um, We've got some other big game ideas that are that are you know getting away from our traditional mold a little bit, but still keeping that portability and lightweight um, in the whitetail world. Uh, we can we can get that to where I feel good about it and, and, and have some good results field testing it, and then we'll probably move forward with that too. And and we also you know once something's in the line, if we see a way to tweak it and make it better, um, we've re-energized some of our printing processes so. The Miss September and 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 uh, the Dreamy Doe are actually going to look better now than they did when we first introduced them. We're just trying to improve our game a little bit and, and make it more as as realistic as possible. So, do you guys ever see yourself going deeper into the three D uh, market? Yes, as long as we can accomplish it in a manner that is unique to us it you know it, it it stays true to the montana bloodline of portability and realism if, yeah. if i were just gonna go out and make another molded full body decoy i don't i don't think i'll do that that doesn't appeal to me that's been done and done well by a lot of companies so i don't i don't know that there's room in that market for a small guy like me to gain enough to make it worth my while so i have to i'm kind of forced by our size and when I say size, I mean, you know, the marketing dollars we can afford to spend and the places we can put them and, and you know, all those kind of things. Uh, just just makes it a little little more business sense for us to, to, to find a new technology, find a new way of doing things and, and, you know, carve our little niche. Sounds good. Well, I tell you what, CJ, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, for anybody who wants to find out more information about Montana decoys, where should we send them? MontanaDecoy.com. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate taking the time to uh, talk with us about uh, the product lines and uh, the uh, engineering behind that. Uh, good luck the rest. Good luck the rest of your turkey season and uh, this uh, this fall. Thank you, and I greatly appreciate you letting me come on the show. I really enjoy doing these things, and uh, and happy to do it. I want to send a quick shout out to CJ Davis. Thanks for coming on the show and repping Montana decoys. Uh, I also want to send a really big and loud thank you to Exodus Trail Cameras for believing in the podcast. Uh, if you guys want to find out more about Exodus Trail Cameras, make sure you go to exodusoutdoorgear.com. They have all the information you could ever want to know about their uh, their trail cameras. And if you do decide to purchase one, make sure you enter in the code nine fingers during checkout, and that's the number nine followed by the word fingers, no spaces, and uh, you will receive $20 off your purchase. So that's a, a good chunk of change off, uh, off your order. Now, most importantly, I want to send a large and very loud and very enthusiastic thank you to the listeners. Monday of this week was my biggest number of downloads to date, over 800. Um, for me, that's really good. And uh, just want to say it is all because of you guys. Thank you very much for what you do and support. 
that that means a lot to me. Other than that, Montana Decoy has decided to take part in this week's giveaway. Now, what what do you win? So here's what. First off, here's what you need to do. You need to sh- go to the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page and share the Facebook post that mentions the podcast with Montana Decoy. That's the first thing you got to do. Then you need to go all the way over to the the Montana Decoys Facebook page and in their comment section you need to write nine fingers sent me and uh, by doing those two things that would be sharing the Facebook post that mentions this podcast and going over to the Montana Decoy Facebook page and commenting nine fingers sent me by doing those two things you will be entered to win this week's giveaway and what is that giveaway you have your choice between the freshman buck decoy or an elk decoy you also have the um, option of the perfect pair turkey decoys and I believe that's two two decoys One one's a hen and one's a jake I, I, I think I, you'll have to go check it out But so you get your choice of two turkey decoys the perfect pair or the freshman buck, or an elk. So that's a pretty badass giveaway. You know how to do it, so go share and like and click and post and do all that stuff. Again, guys, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And uh, remember, when you're in a tree, wear your damn safety harness.